0: In previous years, a student's idea of success, and to be fair, many parents' idea, is all about that grade that they get. Essentially boiling down to how they get on in their exams. And there's obviously no denying that getting good grades is, for many, the key that unlocks the next door. But, if this global pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that life can take unexpected twists. This has presented a lot of us, young people included, with a rare opportunity to question what's important. So, is it time for us to re-evaluate the notion of success to be more about fulfilment than about attainment? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at what it means to flourish and develop the mental agility and resilience to succeed. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Fabienne Vales. Fabienne has over 20 years' experience of teaching across all age groups, from nursery right through to higher education, and she is currently the French Language Director at the University of Bristol. Fabienne is the author of The Flourishing Student and co-author of How to Grow a Grown-Up. Through her work and research, Fabienne is on a mission to change the face of education by embedding well-being into the curriculum. For our students, as with most every student in the country, their results don't just seem to validate their achievement, but our students view them as the sum total of everything that they've achieved. In other words, their results define them. Fabienne, do you think that we're placing too much emphasis on these numbers and letters to the detriment of our young people?
1: Yes, (laughs) is the short answer. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. I keep having conversations about this. I was having a conversation with some of my final year students today in class. I think we send the message that their grades are their identities. And I think that's a big issue because if you suddenly fail for whatever reason, you don't do as well in the exam as you would, maybe because of different reasons. Your identity is challenged. A lot of students arrive at university with this notion that they are, they say, I am an A-star pupil. You know, with GCSEs, maybe now it's going to be like, I am a seven. Or a... <laughs> and the issue with that, with the I am an A-star pupil, is that what an A-star looks like in a small school may look very different when you put those A-star pupils together. And one of the things that we really find at university level is, I often joke and sort of say, small pond, big pond, where you put them all together and then suddenly they realise that there are other A-star pupils who are really achieving much, much better than they are. And that then creates an issue. You know, the minute you say, I am, that's your identity. And it's much more difficult to change your identity than it is to change your behaviour or the results of a behaviour.
0: I see that a lot of students, the ones at the top end, who identify as being these sort of exemplars, and as you say, I'm a nine student, an A-star student, it's not just that that's what they can achieve and the level that they work at. It's also somehow completely welded to their worth, isn't it? If I didn't have the A-star, if I only got an A, or if I did somehow less, actually I'm less, and that can be really damaging, can't it? Yes,
1: and damaging in the sense that also what comes with this is a very stilted view of how I approach things. So very often what comes with this identity is a fixed mindset and also a real fear of failure of not wanting to step out and doing things that potentially, I mean, is is Carol Dweck's work around and then for some people, she's controversial, and her research is not validated and recognised by all. But I really love some of her work, and I really agree. What I see with young people is that if you keep saying to a child, "You're clever, you're clever, you're clever," this is a sign that you're clever because you're getting all those grades, and you don't encourage the effort that's being put in, or how much work, or the enjoyment, then what you're doing is you're inputting an extrinsic source of motivation. And you know for people who don't know, you know extrinsic, intrinsic motivators, extrinsic is and carrot. Intrinsic is what we have naturally as human beings from the minute we're born. So we didn't need to teach our two-year-old to talk. They naturally learned. I mean, you know, given that if they are... They don't have any issues in terms of you know neurodiversity or anything like that that would prevent them from having a normal what we consider as normal developmental stages naturally our children are curious so they will want to go and explore they will sort of start talking in the case of my two children they speak in two languages so they grew up with French and English at home but I never had to bribe them to do that nor Did I need to give them sweets for them to learn French? (laughs) That just naturally happens. And the same with walking and standing up and crawling. And the issue with, for me, what we are currently doing with the GCSEs and the A-levels is that we are sort of dictating, sort of using extrinsic motivation and removing the natural sort of interest that people may have. All of that, plus the fixed mindset, plus the competitiveness. So you know, with the A level, you know the A star pupils of label comes the feeling that you have to compete with others. So they compare their grades to other students. And I was saying, you know, small pond, big pond comparing themselves to other people feeling inadequate because they're not good as the other people. What I label comparatitis is always in a negative way. So they compare themselves, this need to compare themselves to others, but never favorably, never in a positive, but always as a, "I am less than, fear of failure, competitiveness, and perfectionism, and comparatitis, and imposter syndrome. So all of those are things that we see now at young people. And that doesn't make for flourishing, I'm afraid.
0: And so when we talk about, or when you talk about, flourishing, paint us a picture, what is it that you mean?
1: So flourishing is not my own word. (laughs) When we are researchers, we always walk on the shoulders of giants. So I really want to start with that. I want to acknowledge whose shoulders I'm walking on. And this is Corey Keyes in the States. So Professor Corey Keyes is the person who used the terminology flourishing languishing first. It's been used by Seligman as well and positive psychology. But really, the research I used for my first book was Corey Keyes' work, and I actually interviewed him for one of my podcasts. So it's like interviewing my hero, (laughs) it's great. And flourishing and languishing for me is, so flourishing is the ability to cope with the normal stresses of life, but and also contributing positively to your community. And it involves flourishing, not just mental health, It involves managing your physical health, your emotional health, your social health, your mental health, of course, and then what I call your spiritual health. Those are the five ingredients that we need, as well as cultural agility.
0: And so conversely, you have languishing. So is languishing simply the absence of flourishing?
1: Yes, I guess the analogy with what I use to help is a little bit like because flourishing languishing is, Corey Keyes is continuum of mental health. And so I think for me the analogy that works well is physical health is the same. We all have physical health in the same way that we have mental health. And so flourishing is the equivalent of physical fitness, being fit, and languishing is the same as being unfit physically. So we're not talking about illnesses, because actually in the same way that you can be physically fit or unfit and have and suffer from a physical illness, Corey Keys argues that you can be flourishing, so mentally fit, mentally unfit, I guess, and have or not have a mental illness. And I find that really useful as an image because A empowers us to look after our mental health in the same way that we would be looking after our physical health. And also, it enables us to talk more accurately around mental health and not mix what I found when I first started sort of doing the research around a mental health. This reaction in Anglo-Saxon countries, or you in, know, particularly in the UK, where we just sort of tend to talk about mental health, but what we mean is mental ill health, and we don't say that. So it clarifies in a sense that mental health is not the same as mental ill health. And it makes it easier to then provide those who have mental ill health the professional help they need. Because I think as a tutor or a teacher or a parent, I can help someone who is in the flourishing, languishing and the continuums of going up and down. I am not trained, you know, I would not want to help or deal with people who are, you know, who suffer from a mental illness, because that should be left to professionals like, like you would with a medical condition, you know, for your body.
0: I love that idea, both of the continuum and also that sort of state definition of flourishing, because it's not an end state, is it? It's not an ideal or a nirvana that you are going to strive all of your life to get to. Actually we could all flourish it seems achievable as the continuum it seems to work the it's not a switch so it's not either i am or i'm not it's actually right now i might be but in a couple of hours i might not i guess is it that kind of thing so we're always in a state of flux
1: so this is why it works very well for me as a model also because I guess I'll give you the analogy that I often use. I love metaphors. Maybe it just comes with being a linguist. It just works for me. It's the image of the ocean. And then sometimes in the ocean, because of the weather, you'll have really high waves and it'll be really rough. Other times the ocean will be very calm, no waves whatsoever. And very much is the same for us. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you don't know why, you're just not feeling quite right, you know? Sometimes there's no rhyme and reason. Other times it's because, you know, you've got something coming up, like an exam or a difficult conversation at work, if you're working or whatever it is. And I really like that analogy, the fact that, like you say, we all have days, I call them bad hair days. Sometimes it's even bad hair weeks (laughs) or bad hair months, if it's bad enough. But that changes.
0: (laughs) I worry that you're looking specifically at me over Zoom after three or four months of lockdown while you're talking about bad hair days. I've suddenly become quite (laughs) self-conscious.
1: It's fine. Your hair is great. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's also sending a message, a very clear message, that which I guess we talk about in How to Grow Grown-Up with Dominic, we integrated the graph with the up and down. So every time I talk to parents and I ask them, what do you want for your child? The answer is I want my child to be happy and to live a fulfilled life. And the problem with words like happy is that it's so fuzzy. <laughs> and so, you know, what do you mean by happy? I mean, is it your responsibility as a parent to ensure that your child is always happy? Can you guarantee that for your child? You know, is it a realistic expectation to put both on yourself but also on your child I mean, promising them that you are going to make them happy? And I think the problem with a lot of the talk around happiness is that is this suggestion that does not take into account what we mentioned in the book is that even your body, you know, your heartbeat will tell you that the wanting to be at the top, flatlined, constantly happy is not realistic. Because, like, look at an electrocardiogram of your heart. If it's flatlined, it's bad news. You know, the reality of life is that life will throw things at you, you know, curveballs. And actually, it's up and down. And it's not flat I'm always happy. And so I think we should be having those conversations with our young people for them to understand that, you know, yes, sometimes life's ugly. Yes, sometimes life is challenging. In a way, that's what makes life... What it is and interesting, I guess, you know, we go on the roller coaster for the thrill and the excitement, right? And I like to talk, I talk to my children about life as being a roller coaster. Like, you know, some of us go to amusement parks to have that sort of thrill. Well, you know, life is giving it to us every day.
0: (laughs) An interesting analogy that you might seek the dips in the roller coaster in order to enjoy the other bits, whereas obviously we wouldn 't choose necessarily to have some of the sort of the low points if you like, but completely get the idea and by the notion that you need that contrast, happiness is comparative isn 't it also as a definition, I think instant perfection means that we now view or certainly a lot of our young people view happiness as something that's sort of almost out of reach and something that needs to be worked at, and you don't get to see the 72 outtakes of the one photo that the celebrity posted. And so we have this completely artificial view, or certainly this artificial view is being portrayed. It just makes it really, really seemingly unfair, doesn't it?
1: Well, I'll go even further. If you want to go on the roller coaster and have the fun of going down... Sorry, but the only way, (laughs) the only way down is up and vice versa. (laughs) So going back to that fear of failure, the problem is in life, you will fail. It's not if, it's when. (laughs) As babies, we fall and we pick ourselves up. I mean, imagine if as a baby, we had this ability to think that we have as our prefrontal cortex develops. I think that's my argument, is that's why the brain is not that part is not developing when you're a two-year-old. If we as a two-year-old you kept falling and you just thought, you know what, forget this malarkey of standing up and walking, not gonna do it. And we'd all be crawling. (laughs) So I often say to my students, there's no failure, only learning, no mistakes. Only experiences and it's what we draw from those experiences. I'm not saying that, yes, of course, if we could all succeed first time round, would it be fantastic? Well, I don't know, would it be? Wouldn't it be boring if everything you want landed without you trying? <laughs> it's a little bit difficult, isn't it? Because you sort of you think, right, well, I've done one and fail. But I don't know about you, I often, you know, going back to that analogy of the up and down, it's when you're at the bottom and having a challenge that you start looking at your life and thinking, right, okay, what do I want and what am I going to get out of this? And that you question, because when things are going well, you don't question, you don't think, oh, do I want to do things differently? So actually, it's through adversity that we grow and expand, I believe, not when everything is going well and is hunky
0: dory so. It's tricky, isn't it? Because I'm 100% with you, and that failing is a sign that you tried something and you found a way that it won't work, and so you carry on. And so I buy into that completely, that if our children could view their levels of success in a different way, then actually the failing becomes somehow different doesn't it but the problem is when other people are judging what success looks like and we have that with exams don't we that actually there is a a very literal as you know you failed because you didn't get enough marks and you've succeeded because you did and so actually that's what makes it tricky isn't it and then all of a sudden success isn't just about passing success is about having a six or a seven or an eight so that i can go to this college or the next college and doesn't it those external pressures that then come to bear that shifts what it means to fail and what it means to succeed?
1: Yes. And I think it's a cultural issue. So not one that I think we're going to resolve here on the front. You know, currently we talk a lot, we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum. Okay. That's what there's a lot of talk about that. And we talk also about our unconscious biases. So, you know, the biases that we may have around someone's name or their ethnic origin, all of those things that we're not aware of. I would argue that we, in terms of our education system, none of us, in particular those of us who send our children into mainstream, if we are honest with ourselves, have ever sat down and thought, why am I sending my child into school? Why am I going with this system that is the current GCSEs and DA levels, having experienced a different education system. I look at the current system we have and I just think that's, <laughs> that's interesting. So we buy into this system as it stands and we don't question it. And I would argue that that might be an unconscious bias that we, just, we have accepted that the only way to assess a child is by getting them learn particular curriculum in a particular way to I'm sorry I'm gonna have to say it even though you know I know it's not my colleagues who are in secondary schools fault that's what the curriculum national curriculum dictates but I'm sorry rote learning which means that you learn by heart you regurgitate forget it and then on to the next thing the issue with that is that you know we take it for granted and that particular mark is what you need to move on to the next level and then to the next level to university. It's also you know what Tony Blair when I arrived in the UK or not long after I arrived in the UK talked about education, education, education. So you know saying to people you will go to university regardless of whether, A, do they want to go to university? I mean, we have now one in two of our young people in higher education. Of course, I believe in education. Of course, I believe in education because for me, education is lifelong learning. So it means that we don't stop learning when we stop school. We continue learning even when we are working. I mean, I was joking before we started the recording that every day is a school day because I very much believe that. And you know, for me, education is from cradle to grave. So you stop learning the day you die. And so... You know, you're suggesting that there is one model for everyone and that it's about SATs and then about CATs when they get to secondary school in England at least, then GCSEs, then A-levels, then a degree. And now a degree is not enough, so you need a master's degree or a PhD. And that is your model of success. I think as parents and young people, I would invite them to question that. Why? I mean, have we not got enough examples of people who flunked university and are very successful individuals? And even if you have all of those qualifications, if going back to this conversation about parents who want them to be happy, is it going to make you happy? That's where I'm at in terms of my thinking is I think that maybe what we need to do is question this sort of like, okay, one size fits all educ well, I wouldn't want to call it education system or we want to call it schooling system.
0: It's one of those things that deep down I think it's so easy to agree with that because of course, children are individual, what's the benefit of learning something that you won't necessarily go on to need in life in a rote learning kind of a fashion. But then there are practicalities, aren't there, about having a system that shows whether or not you're ready to do something cerebral, whether you're ready to be a doctor and whether you've got the math skills that you would need to be an accountant or all of these other kinds of things. And I do agree that actually having one in two children, young people now at university does seem to sort of counteract that idea that there are specific skills or knowledge that you need in order to go into some of these other jobs. But as I said, there's a system, isn't there? That in order to know that you've reached the right career kind of destination, you need to have been through these steps. And that's why, isn't it, we as parents sort of go almost blindly, as you say, into, well, you go to school, you then go to college, maybe you go to university, maybe you go into the world of work.
1: Possibly because again, culturally, that's all we have. As a (laughs) models.
0: But also you can see that actually there's a definite increase in homeschooling. And I think over the last five, six years, not just pandemic, that home educated is an increasing trend, perhaps for exactly this reason, that there are some children for whom the institutions of education school aren't right for them for any number of good reasons. And I think increasingly what seems to be happening is that parents are questioning, is it the right environment? Are they going to learn the right skills? So I wonder if there isn't a blend of the two, that actually, while the system exists as it is, and it's going to take nothing short of a big revolution, I would say, in terms of what employers expect and demand in CVs, think right up at that level, the schooling system of going through exams and getting these grades is likely to be here for a little while. So does it fall to us parents to complement that schooling system with a broader view of what education is and helping our children by influencing their own notions of success and what it means to be successful.
1: Yes, so I think the role of parents is really underestimated in a sense that our children spend about two-thirds of their times with us and one-third in schools. And as parents, we may not realise how much of a role we can play so, do we buy in? And don't get me wrong. Until recently, until I started researching for the third book and interviewing loads of people who do home ed, like you said, have I started questioning my own cultural <laughs> unconscious biases around education and really thinking about this topic? But as parents, do we believe in this notion of success? So. Are we going to encourage our children to hop on what I call the hamster wheel or the treadmill to look for the external source of happiness, which is get the SATs, that get the GCSE, get the A levels, get the degree, get the masters, get the first job, get the flat, get the partner, get the first kid, you know, get the house, get a car, get a bigger car, get a second child, you know, get rid of first partner, find a second partner keep going okay are we encouraging our children to do that you were talking about employers the list that the things that employers want actually I would argue that currently there's not enough discussions as to what employers want at the end because when you talk to employers I don't think they want young people who are fearful of you know that, that are so into competitiveness that they don't want to collaborate and are afraid of failure. So I think it's about sort of thinking, okay, so if employers want specific skills, which are, you know, to be able to work in a group, to collaborate, you know, there's also this say where people are sort of saying, You know, we're preparing our young people for a world of work that we don't know for jobs we don't know exists yet. I heard a story recently of a seven-year-old writing to his MP saying, why do I have to stay in the classroom so much? Why can I not go outside and play more? And the MP actually wrote this letter saying, but we are preparing you for the world of work and for a job. Sorry, E7. Why are we preparing seven-year-olds for the world of work? I read this (laughs) and I just thought, okay. So I think as parents, we can question that because if the notion is that we want our young people to work, and of course I want young people to work because on a purely selfish basis, I say that often to people who may not be as fascinated and motivated by the world of education than I am, think that these people, when you're retired, will be paying for your pension, your state pension. Okay, So yes, we want them to be able to work and to contribute, of course. But if we continue with a system that we have, with so many young people reporting feeling unwell and experiencing anxiety, having eating disorders, do we know how many billions it's going to cost to the NHS in terms of the cost of that mental ill health, let alone any of the other issues? Just that should make us think enough as parents. And you know, I would also encourage young people to challenge what we have and just say, maybe there's a different way. And it's not that I've got anything against education. I'm in the system. I'm a teacher, like you said, my background is I taught all levels from nursery to, you know, early year settings to primary to secondary, FE, you know, adults, now higher education. I love teaching and I love watching that sort of joy for learning, but I don't think our system currently is giving that joy of learning and that curiosity that we all need to be lifelong learners.
0: I think taking the two analogies that you've made together with the letter from the MP, which is startling, as you say, that a seven-year-old should be prepared for work. But I wonder too, thinking back to crawling and those childhood experiences as we develop, as you say, you fall over and you get back up and you try again. Now, while you said that there was no reward for your own children talking two languages, I would guess that praise for the fact that they were trying, came into it. And so there were rewards that helped to motivate your children to do it. But I wonder whether that kind of natural reward system that you were giving as a parent that was encouraging and that many teachers give in early year settings as well, I think, to be fair, I wonder if they are diminished because the school setting is much more Boolean about you've done this well, you haven't done this well. And so actually, all of a sudden, they can become very much more conscious about what it means to not get it right. And that has an impact on their mindset and the way that they view trying and failing and succeeding and and all of these things.
1: Yes. And also, learning to speak a language is a language of affinity. So your child says one word and you repeat it, and they see that it makes you, you know. So it's human, is that human connectedness? You know, we are wired to connect and socialize with others, it's inbuilt. So, of course, you know, we want to learn. And the same with walking and standing again, you know, if we do not have any learning difficulties, things will just happen naturally given the right environment. Now, if you compare early years settings, and I think this is one part in education in our schooling system that we have right, the early years settings, in the sense that you watch early years settings, children are all over the place. They've got access to the whole you know, nursery, and they can just go and play and explore and you know, play with sand and get bored and then go and play with water and And then, you know, year one, bang! Here's a desk, here's a chair, sit there, you're not moving, and you're this empty vessel. And I, the sage on the stage, I'm gonna fill you up with my knowledge. You know, again, you know, not my colleagues' fault. You know, they have their job. The brief is to get the children to. The requirements, their pay is indexed on students' success, let's not forget. My heart goes to them now that we've lost this sort of exam (laughs) and they have to grade these young people with not many grading opportunities. I think the problem with that is with the current curriculum. There's this national curriculum, there's this set thing that you have to know. The answer is at the back of the book. Sorry, but look at COVID. There was no answer at the back of the book. Life is usually, there's no answer at the back of the book. And so we're also suggesting that somehow we have answers for everything and it prevents young people to be okay with uncertainty and change. And I think that's also an issue
0: and there's a real paradox, isn't it, that you've got the MP saying the 7 year olds at school to prepare them for the world of work, and yet the entire education system is about being fed stuff that somebody already knows. And so actually, as you say, you're not gearing the children up to think creatively, to necessarily even be resilient, and all of these other kinds of things that actually... They really are going to need in the world of work the sort of the skills that sit underneath it, which I guess a number of secondary school teachers would argue is what goes sort of alongside their own curriculums. And that's what they're trying to develop in. But as you say, the institution itself, again, just by virtue of where you end up, here is your number, move on in line, doesn't actually feel like it works that well.
1: No, and also, again, going back at the system, I know so many teachers who would like to give our young people more. But, you know, so if you have a national curriculum to meet, you've got a particular set of things that your students need to demonstrate, they've achieved, they've understood, so they can meet the criteria for their GCSEs, those high stakes of GCSEs, okay? If it's going too fast, you know, I've got a question. Yeah, great question, but no, not now. We've got no time. (laughs) And the thing is, we talk a lot about well-being. So in my work, I try and embed well-being in the curriculum. And when you talk to young people, they will very clearly tell you this. On one hand you have a system that is putting a lot of pressure on them that asks them to focus on the next mock, the next task, the next, you know, work hard, revise, get your mocks, get your marks, okay? And so we put a lot of pressure on our young people to perform and it's competitive. We compare our schools against each other. That's how we've got all those lovely league tables. We index the salaries of our teachers against the results of our young people. And so, you know, it's bums on seats for funding, quite frankly, that's how it <laughs> works. So you've got this on one hand, but then we say to them, but don't worry, don't get stressed. And if you're stressed, go and do some mindfulness or some, I don't know, go and run or do something else. And we bolt it on the system. But what young people say is, I don't care when my teacher tells me, don't worry or don't get stressed, because I see them as the reason for my stress. And one student put it beautifully. I loved her analogy. She said, for me, when my teacher tells me, not to worry it's almost like but then in the second breath she says and remember to revise and work hard over the weekend for your test on Monday it's a little bit like a drug dealer giving me in one hand some drug and then in the second breath saying but remember drugs are bad for you and you might want to go on a detox and I was like Oh, <laughs> but I love young people because they say as it is, right? If you talk to them. As a parent, I was a little bit like, oh, oh.
0: It is definitely on the dark side, as analogies go, but you can see that, can't you, that you're peddling the two. And I guess the really difficult thing from a teacher's perspective is both are probably well-meant and valid. I don't want you to stress, but at the end of the day, this exam is going to affect your prospects for the rest of your life. And so although they mean don't get stressed, how on earth could you understand the importance and not get stressed? So I'm really interested, going back to the embedding piece, so how do you go about embedding well-being into a curriculum or into a student's every day, I guess, if we take it outside of schools and into homes, so much so that they do build up what you refer to as the mental agility and resilience?
1: So there are five well-being essentials that we know of that still are comes work in Australia, And those are creating a sense of belonging and a sense of positive relationship. If you want to sort of give you a visual, that's what it looks like. In the middle, you've got what she calls autonomous motivation. I would call it intrinsic motivation. That is central to everything. That's what we talked about, is what gets you to want to talk as a child and, you know, or crawl and stand up and explore, you know, and pull the Wi Fi you know, plug when you're free <laughs> to see what it does. So, at the top, it's all to do with social interactions because we're human beings and we're mammals. So, we need social interactions. That's how we thrive and flourish. Positive relationships, sense of belonging. And then underneath autonomy and competence. So we know from research, it's not just Larkham, but also the work I've done with the flourishing students, that self-efficacy, that sense of autonomy and that sense of competence, that you know, I can do this, that comes with the very often with the growth mindsets. They work all hand in hand. And what I've seen recently, because we've started embedding well-being in the curriculum in the activities we do with year one and year two, is that, interestingly, competence and motivation seem to be the most challenging to amend or to change. And I think the reason for that is because the current system encourages extrinsic motivation so much that it's very difficult to shift that. And I'll give you a very recent example. I asked my final year students today, how do I motivate you to speak more in the class, you know, on Zoom, rather than having those blank screens with no cameras and no mics. And she said, make the speaking part of the mark, the final mark. And I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that gives you an example so you know to go back to your question as parents we can encourage our children to first of all discover who they are understand that they are unique individuals so they're not the same as their friends chances that if you've got several children you'll see that they're completely different <laughs> from each other that's great to be honest I don't think employers won't you know, gingerbread cookie cuts sauce employees. We need that diversity. So I would say, you know, as parents, let's encourage that I am okay with who I am, first of all. Encourage the autonomy, the intrinsic motivation, and developing the sense of competence. So understanding that when we first learn new things, it's challenging and it's going to get us out of our comfort zone. But it's okay that, you know, the more we get out of our comfort zone, the better it
0: is. I absolutely love that bit about discovering who they are. That for me is really important. And as you say, any parent who's certainly got two or more children will so easily be able to recognise the fact that actually... Well, from my own experience, they're like chalk and cheese. They couldn't be more different in so many ways. And yet, obviously, there's a common sits between them. And I think encouraging them to be like that is so important.
1: Just because you and your partner came together to conceive this child that's assuming that this is a normal conception, Okay, does not mean that this child is half you, half your partner. It's not a mini me. They are unique individuals who have their unique sets of skills and abilities, and you are here to explore life in their own way. And I think as parents, and to some extent as educators, we should encourage that discovery to just allow our children to be them. And in fact, I would encourage us to, rather than just assuming that we know who they are, to really have curiosity and go, okay, I'd like to discover who you are. Who are you as an individual, as a child? But that means changing again, some of our societal conceptions of who children are. There's this old adage of, you know, children need to be seen but not heard. And this belief that because we are bigger and older than them, therefore we know more and we should tell them, I learned so much from my children. They've been my greatest teachers, to be honest and i've absolutely particularly loved covid because i've been at home when before i was working so many long hours and not away from them that i really feel i've discovered who thomas and jack are as individual and i've learned to you know love their quirkiness their specific abilities to make you laugh or be silly or you know that would be my parting words is you know if you don't do anything else if you don't want to challenge the current system that you're happy with this because I know some parents love the system the schooling system it works for them please encourage your child to just be them and to find out what makes them work and what makes them come to life what they're good at so they can explore further because To be successful in life, it's about discovering what we're good at so we can become so good that nobody can ignore us. That's all I would want to say to parents is do that and then it'll all work out.
0: Fabienne, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights. I absolutely love this idea of flourishing. It feels somehow more wholesome, more complete than simply being happy. Over the two years that the study buddy has been up and running, I've spoken to lots of parents from lots of different backgrounds, and the one thing that we all have in common is that we want our children to be happy and for them to fulfil their potential. And that, to me, seems to be perfectly encapsulated in Fabienne's idea of flourishing. When I think about what it means for my children to flourish, after talking to Fabienne, I'm really taken beyond the assessments and the grades, but not beyond the education. And I think that's really interesting, and an important distinction. We've become quite single-minded about how important these grades are, and there's no denying that they are important, but they're not everything. And while for some the pressure of getting the grades can act as a catalyst, and spur them on, dig deep, and, and study more, I agree with Fabienne that for many, this is a source of great and unwanted anxiety. It feels so pivotal in their lives that unless they get the best number or the best letter, that they've terminally failed. And of course, that's absolutely not true. I love Fabienne's analogy to toddlers walking. It doesn't matter how many times they fall down, they'll always get back up. And that has a lot to do with us, naturally. We encourage them to try again and to not give up. Now, we touched on this idea before when we talked to Sam Twizzleton in episode 18. We rightly, I think, rely on teachers to impart knowledge. But that isn't to say that we've handed over all learning responsibilities. As parents, we have a really important role to play in our teens' education and development, just as we did when they were babies and young children. As Fabienne pointed out, two-thirds of our children's time is spent at home. Although, to be fair, it might feel like they're spending at least the majority of that in bed. But what we do with that time, how we react to our young person's experiences, whether good or bad, will shape their perspective, which will have a direct bearing on their well-being. We can be the counterbalance to the inevitable pressures of school and exams, the reassuring and encouraging voice that we all need from time to time. Now, unfortunately, the answers aren't in the back of some mystical parenting book. But I genuinely believe that just like we encouraged our children to talk and walk without being shown how, as parents, we know instinctively what it will take to help our children flourish. And we should be a little braver, I think, about relying on those instincts to help our children to fulfill their rounded potential and to flourish. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and useful as I have. If you did, would you take a moment to leave a five-star review and perhaps a rating too? It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.